0: It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. A reminder for myself every week, and I say it often as a reminder to myself, that our faith cannot be practiced alone. Even as we gathered this morning as a worship team to pray and walk through the service. I was invited just to a renewed gratefulness from the Lord this morning. But it's not all on me. That when I find myself most unsure, most incapable or inept to do the job that we have been tasked with, I don't only look up to the strength that God gives me, but I look around to the community that God has invited me to be a part of. So as we reflect on the text this morning, as we try to think critically and deeply about what it means that our God is both three and one, let us never forget one of the things that's powerful about the way we have the chairs set up here, an intentional choice, is that we would not forget that we gather as one. Yet, all unique. We all bring our own stories, our own baggage, our own pain, our own success and failure. That we all bring it to this place, and it becomes a shared story. So for that, I am grateful. Let me read our scripture for us this morning, found in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, a small portion of a much larger discourse of Jesus. But let us read from this text this morning. If you're able to, I'd invite you to stand as we honor the reading, the significant reading of God's word for us today. And it reads like this, Jesus to his disciples For that reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we dive into the text today, one of the great responsibilities but also joys that I have here, not only get to serve as an associate pastor, but get to serve specifically as a youth pastor, and I just want to share a little bit about what's happening in the life of our youth ministry Last night, we just got back from our first weekend trip in almost two years. What a really joyous time it was. I think we have a photo that I want to share with you. Took a group of our students and leaders to West Edmonton Mall yesterday. First of all, let me admit to you, while I'm relatively still new here, when I moved here and someone told me there was an indoor water park, I thought, you're lying to me. I lived in the south of the United States, where a water park had one place, and that was outdoors, because all year round, you could go to a place. When they told me there would be a place indoors, with it is quite the structure. Well, We took a group of us yesterday. This is just a little bit of what we did, and um, just a fun time. This is at the end of the day, so I'm surprised we got them to smile. I hope that's a good indication that we had a good time. One of the things that stuck out to me about that trip yesterday that I want to just point out. I think Pastor Stu pointed this out several weeks ago. If we're honest with ourselves, these last two years have been hard. For a variety of reasons, we all carry burdens. And I think we would be naive to admit that even as we kind of phase out into maybe a new way of life, that those things don't still walk with us. Pastor Stu said this, and I found it so significant as it struck a nerve that I had not yet identified in myself that I think this last two years has made us tired, it's made us cynical, it's made us suspicious. I think more than anything, it's made us sad. And I think as we enter into perhaps this new phase of life, the biggest disservice we might do to ourselves is fail to admit where the burden still is heavy. And so yesterday, when we were in the water park and I sat there in the wave pool, this really like kind of weird thing where you're surrounded by all these people and you're like, how to get a tube right in the face as the wave comes over you. I not only found myself laughing, but I heard laughter from our students and it hit me for a moment where I wondered, I wonder if this is the first time we've laughed in two years. Like, honestly laughed. Honestly smiled and celebrated that which is going on in the world. And I wonder for us what's significant in that moment for me was not that I was joyous because I fully understood what was happening, but much like riding a tube in a wave pool, not sure where it might take you, I found myself caught up in something that I did not fully understand, caught up in something that took me somewhere, that led me to a place that I did not anticipate I would be at the beginning of the day, yet regardless took me to a place of peace. So as we think deeply about who God is this morning, as we try to think critically about what it means for this God that we serve to be three in one, I think the invitation first and foremost is that we might not fully understand, but that we would be caught up in something. That we would be moved. That we would be invited that we would be swayed back and forth, sometimes to the places we know, but sometimes and more often to the places we have yet to be and may not fully understand. So, for all of that, I am grateful. Come back a little tired, back's a little sore, church floors are just not the most comfortable to sleep on, if you didn't know that. But with a smile, a smile that I have not felt in a long time. I've got some questions for us this morning. Do you remember when you first learned to love? Do you remember maybe a person, an individual, uh, an experience? I remember for me, one of the first loves that I had was a pet goldfish. I was really jealous because my brother had a pet turtle and see what he could do with his pet turtle, his name was Spike, named after a character from Land Before Time movies, they were fun growing up. He had this turtle, Spike, and he could pet his turtle. He could take it out of the cage and he could like walk it around his room and he could like touch and hold his pet. I got a pet goldfish, and I was really jealous of my brother, as most younger siblings are. So I thought, well, I have this goldfish, I wanna do what my brother does, naturally. And so nobody told me that you probably really shouldn't pet a goldfish, but I thought I would try anyway. So I had this bull and as this goldfish was named Lucky, by the way. Joke in my family is that Lucky really wasn't all that lucky by the end of his life. Because I decided I was going to pet this goldfish, and if you've ever pet a fish, they don't seem to like it very much, um, and in fact, it sometimes does a disservice to the um, length of their life, we'll say. So Lucky didn't last very long in the household, uh, and he ended up going where all goldfish go, down the porcelain throne to uh, somewhere else, we'll say. <laughs> When I also think about my first love, a significant memory while silly. This was a story I told Michaela when we first started dating. Maybe for some of us we remember like that one person on the playground. This was where you first learned to love. For me, it was this girl named Lindsay. I remember that I was like so infatuated with this person. And I didn't even know why in the moment. I was five years old and I just was determined. Like this, if there's anybody that's gonna be like the one, it's this girl. For some reason. Looking back, it was really because it was my brother's best friend's sister, and I thought, like, well, if I was, like, with her, then it would make me cool like my brother and my best, his best friend. But anyway, regardless, that distracts from the grandeur of this story. I was determined that this was going to be the girl that I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And so, of course, in any great love story, you have to muster up the courage. So I decided one day at recess, I was going to walk up to this girl and I was going to profess all the deep feelings that I had in this moment. And this was going to be like the cameras were going to come out, the music was going to swell, and this was going to be like the most defining moment of my five-year-old life. So I walked up to Lindsay, looked her in the eye, and of course at the moment, I didn't realize that my brother and his best friend were like laughing in the background because they knew it was about to happen walked up to her, looked her in the eyes, and I said three of probably the most terrifying words that any one person can say to another. I love you. Maybe some of you have said those words to somebody before, and you feel this anxiety, this excitement, this joy, this expectation, because once these moments, once these words are out, you don't have control over them anymore. So I spoke these words into existence that only I knew, but then all of a sudden the world knew, and I'll let you guess where the story goes. Now I'll tell you where the story goes. Lindsay looked at me, I, she screamed, and she ran off. because <laughs> I suppose she did not feel quite the same way. And that was the end of the great love story that was Lindsay on the playground when I was five years old. Thankfully, the next time uh, that I would tell a girl that I loved her it was Michaela, and it went far different than that. Um, yeah, she didn't scream, thankfully, so lasted well so far. I think as we think about our lives, there's moments that maybe come to our mind about when we learned to love. Maybe it was a significant experience we had with a parent, a relative, a close friend. Somebody who postured themselves in a way that we didn't fully understand, but we knew was touched on something deep. Like the way that they lived their lives both for us and around us, touched on something that felt just innate, but we didn't fully know how to understand it. Like when the parent goes out of their way to pick you up at school when something happened. When a crisis occurs in your life and somebody drops everything that they have to wrap you up in their arms. For some of us, we have those experiences and when we think about love, we have very positive memories. But also one of the challenges of being a part of a community is that we recognize that that's not the story for everybody. When we ask the question, where did you first learn to love, perhaps some might think, well, I first learned how not to love from these people. Again, maybe a parent, a relative, somebody close in your community, somebody who lived their lives in a way that when we looked at them or experienced what they did, we knew that it touched on something deep to tell us that is not how we are to live our lives. For some of us, we still carry those pains, those scars, those burdens. So as we think deeply about the Lord this morning, as we think about what it means that God is three in one, then we say that God is, in essence, this love that we are called to, we must be honest both about the positives and the negatives, the good and the bad memories from both our own lives and the lives of those that sit and worship next to us. I think this text is fascinating. Not so much for the way that I understand it, but for the things that I know that I do not understand. As Kelly said earlier, this day marks a day called Trinity Sunday, an interesting follow-up to this day we celebrated last week called Pentecost, a recognition and affirmation that the Spirit of the Lord dwells among us, and within us. We reflected on this story in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit hovered, descended, took hold of those that would dare to follow this Christ, and imbued them with an ability and a power that they could not do on their own, one that gave them opportunity to spread this message of hope to all those around this, regardless of language and culture. This fascinating story reminds us that God in his departure. As the story goes, when Christ dies, resurrects, walks among the disciples, Christ then leaves them. Leaves them only to be followed up by the spirit that will continue to live among the church. And so now as we have this day called Trinity Sunday, a day that invites us to just think who God is. But also, who God is defines what God does, and in turn, defines what we do. So people might ask, why does the Trinity matter? Well, that word's not even in the Bible. Well, they might be right, us, but the word Christmas isn't in the Bible either, and we sure talk about that a lot. So a helpful way to talk about the Trinity is not so much that, yeah, the word's not in Scripture, yet we find this mysterious reality. When God refers to himself, refers to himself in these three distinct yet unified forms. Even in our text today, as Christ talks about his relationship with the Father, talks about that which would be revealed in the Spirit, it invites us to affirm that for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has wrestled with this question, not so much as a way to make an analogy that, uh, that we can understand but as a way to begin to try to wrestle with what Scripture has been revealing since the beginning. That the better we understand who God is, the better we begin to read Scripture as we go back and we realize that God has been acting in this triune nature since the very beginning. As we read in the earliest account of creation, God says, let us create them in our image. This intentionally plural image gives us a picture from the very beginning of Scripture that this God is different, that this God has something else going on that is unique, mysterious, yet incredibly invitational. One of the things that I think is important that we get caught up in when we think about the Trinity is there's this sort of specificity, this sort of arithmetic when we think about God. We, maybe some of us have heard one plus one plus one equals one. One. This kind of mathematical approach to who God is and how God works, and while I'm grateful for the analytical thinkers among us, grateful for the specificity at times in life, what I would suggest to us today is that this invitation is an invitation not so much to understand fully but to be caught up into something. A word derived from Latin that's used often when we think about the Trinity, this word perichoresis, often understood to be this kind of circle dance, one of the best English translations we have, as a way to define who God is, describes if you've ever stood in a circle and held hands with people and danced. You know that you're not fully in control. If somebody speeds up, you speed up. If somebody slows down, you slow down. Yet at the same time, each of you are working in tandem with one another. So I think for us this morning, as we think about this God who dances, this God who moves, this God who is more than something simple that we might understand, that we're invited to hold hands. Be caught up in this dance, be caught up in this rhythm to take us to places that we both understand and places that we do not. One of the things we did a few weeks ago that I thought was really important uh, Pastor Sue and Pastor Jen shared some artwork on Palm Sunday, and I'd like to share a few images with you this morning. Uh, when we think about the Trinity, you know, people for hundreds and hundreds of years have, as I've said, have wrestled with this. And one of the best mediums that I found myself. Um, woefully unprepared to understand but so in need of is art because what art does is it invites us to kind of sit with something and then sit with it again and then sit with it again and again and again so I want to share three images with you this morning some that you may recognize and some that you may not images throughout history of artists who have thought what does it mean that our God is like this and who is this God that we serve? The first one I want to share is from St. Andrew Rublev. This is from the 15th century. Maybe some of you have seen this. Unfortunately, some of it was cropped out, but we'll show you that in just a minute. Have anybody seen this image before? Yeah, maybe some of us? This is a really important image throughout history in the church. Because this image is significant for a number of reasons. Rublev, what he was trying to do is say, Well, there, there's something at play that's bigger than just simply God is God, but God is something mysterious. And so he draws God as these three persons. What's significant about this art is not so much what it is, but how it's different than other artwork in the day. When people drew gods or people of importance, they would often adorn them with jewelry, with crowns, with something that said, these people are significant. What's fascinating about the way that Rublev showcases God is that, yes, well, the clothes are nice, There's no over-the-top jewelry and crowns, signifies this understanding that God is a God of humility, a God that not only looks at the world but looks down. The gaze is really important because they're looking down not just at the ground, but what's cropped out in the photo is that they're sitting at a table, a table where the Eucharist was laid out, the Holy Communion, the feast that we receive the moment where we're invited to participate in something. And so some commentators have suggested that what Rublev is suggesting here is that, yes, God is three, but also there's an empty seat at the table. And that seat is for us. What's happening there is that God says, this is who I am, this is what I feast on, this is what I do, would you come join me? 150 years later, another artist, go to the next slide, Jeronimo Casita, a Spanish artist, Uh, artist drew this, kind of in follow-up to what Rublev is doing. Rublev just defines God as these kind of three persons. What's interesting about this is it's an affirmation that, yes, Christ is three, but also Christ is one. So you see this kind of, it's honestly kind of weird looking, but this face that like looks like it's shaking maybe a little too fast. These three different faces and holding what would come to be known as kind of the, the shield of the Trinity, a really significant image, again, throughout religious imagery It shows the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Latin says no est. It's Father is not the Son. Son is not the Spirit. Spirit is not the Father. Yet, they are all God. This painting exists in Spain still today. The last one that I want to show you, I stumbled upon. It's a modern piece of artwork in the late 20th century by a woman named Marlene Schultz. This is the one that fascinates me the most, the one that I actually have hanging in my office because I'm so captivated by it. And I sit there and I look at it and I sit with it and I think yeah I get that but then I come back the next day and I sit with it again what Schultz is trying to describe here this is an image of the baptism of Christ described in John as Christ is baptized it says that the clouds opened up that the spirit descended that the voice of the father was heard and that the son spoke to the father What's interesting about this image, there's a lot of circles. What circles help us to do is follow the eye line. The circles lead us not just down, but back up, and not just up, but back down. In this important reminder and affirmation that what is innate to God's character is that God is always moving. Moving. But when God invites us to the relationship that God has with God's own self is that it's dynamic. It's also not one way. It's a give and a take, and it's also bigger than any one of us. What's fascinating about this piece of artwork for me is that it reminds me that following Christ, following this God who is bigger than myself, is a lifelong journey. I think for some of us, and for some in the church throughout history, have understood the faith as simply something that we believe, that we know, and then perhaps move on from. Something that we experience in a moment. Something that we come to know maybe from a young age, but then never really takes root in our day-to-day lives. What I find so important about this picture for me, why I have it by my desk, why I sit there and I look at it sometimes before I pray. It invites me to ponder how am I following God today? Not just how did I follow God yesterday, or how did I follow God the years before, but what new thing might God be calling me in to today? I appreciate you dwelling on this artwork with me for a few moments. One of the things that I'm growing more and more convinced of is that we need a diversity of voices in our lives. We need people that think differently than us. We need people that think in ways that we cannot understand. And one of the greatest blessings of this church is that we have that. What can seem like uncomfortable growing pains at times, moments where we don't know if we all maybe are on the same page with everything, I think comes an opportunity and an invitation to learn to listen. Now to the text for us today. It's my preamble. I'll get to the text. I promise I'll get us out by lunchtime. Don't worry. (laughs) I think that the way people are not only defines that, but defines what we expect them to do. There are many people in your lives that if I asked you to define who they were, you would come up with a number of adjectives. You would say, well, that person is adventurous, that person is thoughtful, that person is this way, and in tandem describes kind of who they are not. I was talking to Pastor Mo, Pastor Mo was running our live stream this morning, I was talking to her this morning about artwork, uh, one of the most creative and thoughtful people I know. What's important about that is I remember, like, if I'm ever to invite Mo, you know, out to go hang out and do something, if the options are a film festival or a hockey game, we probably know where we're going to find Mo <laughs> one of them, and not the other one. What I think is important about that is that character defines the choices that we make. Who we are and who we are not defines what we will do over what we will not. And so when we think about our God as Trinity, it's not only important for the way that we understand who God is, but what we see revealed in Scripture from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 when God creates you and me and all of humanity breathes life into us, breathes spirit into us. Not a life and spirit that comes from somewhere else, but a life and spirit that comes from God's very self. Sometimes people will talk about this as the image of God. The very character and nature of who God is is that which we are given from the very beginning. And so when we think about following God, it's not simply this affirmation that we must look and praise and look upon where God is going and doing, but also this invitation for us to ask, how might we faithfully follow? What does it mean for us to not just be observers of this God, but actually followers of this God? I think what's interesting about this text, I said it was part of a much longer discourse, that begins in chapter 14. What Jesus says to his his disciples here is all motivated by this question. Judas, uh, not Iscariot, which I think is kind of funny that the character in the Bible is better known for who he is not than who he is. Judas, not Iscariot. We don't know a lot about him, but he asked this question of Jesus. As Jesus begins to allude to the fact that he won't be with them much longer, that he's about to leave, causes some fear and anxiety in them to lead him to ask this question, but Christ, how will you reveal yourself to us? Almost as if he hadn't been listening for the time before, as Christ had told him that the Spirit would come, that he would send somebody to walk with them, to lead them, to encourage them. Yet at the same time, this question demonstrates a posture of fear that what if we don't have you, Jesus? What might we do? How will you reveal yourself to us? I think what motivates questions like this is a fear of the unknown. For the disciples, they had followed Jesus faithfully for three years. They had walked with him. They had listened to him. They had come to know him in ways that they had not expected. And now when this Jesus says that he will leave them, it's only natural. It's easy for us to look on scripture and say, well, I wouldn't have done that. I would bet to say in those moments that we might feel, if not more so, the same levels of worry and fear and anxiety about where God is going. But I think what's interesting then is that Scripture tells us that we're created in this image. And so as Judas asked this question of Jesus, how might you reveal yourself to us? A question that's far more motivated by what Judas wants than by what God wants Jesus' discourse later on throughout the next three chapters begins to understand and discern for us this posture of revelation. It almost that he answers the question without answering the question. How might you reveal yourself to us, Christ? And he looks back at the church and says this. Through you. Through us. That to be the church... As we celebrated last week on Pentecost Sunday, this birth, this movement that would come to be known as what we experience today was to be the way that Christ would be known in the world, was to be the way that God would be understood from those that are looking on. And so this God that is, in his very essence, love, this God that has created us in God's own image, invites us, then, to love. Yet at the same time, Judas's love of himself leads him to a posture that is far different than the love that God invites us to. I think what's really important for us as a community is a humility to admit when we're wrong. Humility to admit when we don't have it all figured out. See, when God invites his church to love their neighbor as themselves. We often focus on the word love, an important word, nonetheless, a word with a lot of emotion, a word packed full of expectation. The quantifier of where that love is to be directed becomes very important for us. What I find more and more in my life is that I think that everybody loves actually think everybody in the world loves, loves something, loves someone, and in turn chooses not to love something else. And so Judas's question here is motivated by a love rather than what God wants, a love of what he wants, a posture of self-preservation and fear, a posture that on a much, much smaller scale I demonstrated for myself from a young age, where I chose to love this individual, but much more for my own gain than for anybody else's. Because what I saw in that trajectory was that I would be elevated, that I would be put in a place where I felt like I kind of fit into a certain group of people. And so the question that we have to ask for us this morning, what are the things that we love? Where are the places that God is calling us to? We celebrated this Pentecost moment last week in Acts chapter 2. But I would suggest to us this morning that that's not the first time that a Pentecost has happened in Scripture. We see it from the very beginning. In Genesis 2, when God breathes His Spirit into us, creates us in His image, and invites us to be little pictures of who he is in the world, this begins what would be known as the Pentecost, the arrival of Christ, the invitation for the world to be all that it was created to be. Author James Smith says that love is our most fundamental orientation to the world. It's less of a conscious choice and more of a baseline inclination. In some ways, what he's suggesting is that all of us love, sometimes without even knowing, what we are loving. He goes on to discuss how our loves are deeply influenced by the things that we worship. I think if we were honest with ourselves, we could list off the things that we worship, and perhaps some of those things would be different than God. Why gatherings like this are so important, not only for our own understanding, but for our own formation. That to sit here in a room to watch a service, to invite God into a moment where we pause and we reflect and we ponder who God is becomes a moment that shapes us. That it begins to invite us to say, well, there's other voices in the world that are calling me to love other things. If we turn on the news for even five minutes, it'll tell us that we need to love ourselves more than others. That we need to love our money more than we love giving it away. That we need to love our futures more than the future of our neighborhoods that we need to fear more than hope. And so spaces like this become powerful for us. They become powerful in that they invite us to think differently than the world often invites us to. This posture demonstrated even in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy describes these people That are treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think we need honesty with ourselves. We need honesty to admit that even for those of us that have followed God for a very, very long time, there are voices in our world that call us to love something else each and every day. I'm gonna end with a poem this morning. I Started with some artwork and I'm in it with some poetry. I found some words that have moved me for many, many years. An American poet from Kentucky in the 19th century named Wendell Berry. Some of you may know. Anybody know Wendell Berry in here? I've Got some fans. And yeah, Doug, Doug and I, we read the same things. It's nice. I like talking to Doug. Wendell Berry. If you've never run across, uh, a really excellent poet. Often makes himself the character of his own poetry. Refers to himself as the mad farmer. Uh, you met any mad farmers who so are like, they just, are, I don't know, they just seem weird. <laughs> just kidding. First to himself as the mad farmer because the way of life that he has been so caught up in seems mad to those that would look. It seems strange. It seems counterproductive in some ways. Because Barry has been so moved and transformed by the Spirit of God in his life that he's been led to a posture that doesn't make sense to others. In a poem called Manifesto, I'm going to read a few lines for us this morning. He assesses the posture that the world often invites us to take and then offers a critique and a counter to it. So in the first stanza, he demonstrates what he feels like is the norm for those around him. He says this, Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with more pay, want more of everything ready-made be afraid to know your neighbors and to die and you will have a window in your head not even your future will be a mystery anymore your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer and when they want you to buy something they will call you when they want you to die for profit they will let you know And he offers a counter, says so. Friends, every day do something that will not compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. He ends with these words. As soon as the leaders of the world can predict the motions in your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign that marks the false trail the way that you did not go. So be like the fox who takes more tracks than necessary, sometimes in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. What I find so captivating about Barry is that he seems to understand something fundamental to the way that we're called to live our lives. When we think about God as three in one, this God that loves, that is in relationship with God's own self, the God that creates us in that image, this God that invites us to love in that very way, I wonder why we don't. And I think the answer is simple. As Barry describes this fox, if you've ever seen a fox move, they don't tend to walk in a straight line, but they tend to take, as he says, more steps than necessary. A love for the world in the way that God loves it doesn't make sense. It requires something of us. It requires more tracks than we would rather make. It requires us to move at a pace that is sometimes slower a pace that sometimes costs us something. For those of us that would be bold enough to follow this Christ, for those of us that would dare to say God is Lord, I am not. For those of us that would join in this dance that God is inviting us into, it invites us to cost, to a cost. It invites us to a place where we say, it's not always just about me. You'll know this if you've ever worked with people that have particular needs in your life. Maybe you've helped somebody in a time where they didn't have enough. Maybe you've been at a place where you've been helped, didn't have enough. Maybe you've been at a place where you comforted somebody, in emotional crisis. You've been with somebody in the hospital when a family member passed away. You've sat with somebody as they cried. You know in these moments that they cost us something. Not just our time and our resources, they cost us a piece of ourselves. Because their baggage becomes my baggage. Their pain becomes my pain. Their hurts become my hurts. I think we're far too pragmatic when we think about following Jesus. We'll do what's called a return on investment. How much can I spend and how much will I get back in my pursuits to love the world? If I'm honest with myself this morning... I'd admit that sometimes his thoughts creep into my head. When I feel God calling me to something that I don't fully understand, I know, but God, that's bigger than me. I don't have the resource to do that. That's actually more than I can spend today. I think what God invites us to is a humility, a humility to listen and say, even if I don't have all the answers, even if I don't have all the resources, Even if I don't have all that I need to do the work that you have called me to, you still call. I'm going to invite the band to come forward as we close with one more thought. I think what's powerful about understanding God as three, God as triune, God as this God who dances in a circle and lives in relationship it invites us to live in a gracious and generous posture, one that admits that God loved so much that God created us out of who God was. What if we lived our lives in a way that was so overflowingly gracious, but all those around us, all those that saw us, all those that experienced our faith couldn't help but be changed? My prayer for us this morning is that we would be less pragmatic when it comes to following Jesus, that we would be more honest, that we'd be more open, that we'd be more bold to follow God into these new and scary and uncertain days and get wrapped up in something that we don't always understand, but wrapped up into something that will lead us to a joy that we cannot experience on our own. As I found myself laughing this weekend for the first time in a while, I remember the times that I have followed God and not understood, yet at the same time have been comforted. And I remember the times that I tried so hard to understand what God was doing. I tried so hard to see where God was taking me, and I found myself empty. So church, this morning as we close in one more song, as we reflect on who God is, would we have the boldness to worship, the boldness to say, not my way, but yours. Where you lead, we will follow.